0: Today's topic, today's topic is Understanding Holy Intimacy and the reason why this topic we'll explain in a couple of moments is I think it's a kind understanding of what has begun today. Today you know is Rosh Chodesh of Elul, we're actually starting the uh, High Holiday mode, today actually in your prayers you actually add on a new prayer called the David Hashem Ori a very special paragraph of of Psalms chapter and tomorrow morning we start hearing the shofar every single morning already so we're at the stage actually that the high holidays are taking place what exactly is different about this time of the year than every other time of the year hopefully that's what we're going to be exploring through understanding holy intimacy interesting enough I actually, my cover page of all these notes, by the way, is a copy-paste of what intimacy is. I actually went to uh, Webster.com, Merriam-Webster, and I wanted to find out what exactly is the definition of intimacy, and i tell you why. I think the first challenge of today's lecture is to really understand which is more abstract, Is intimacy more abstract to us? Or is holiness more abstract to us? More. I think if more people over here would immediately take the stand. That uh, intimacy we all know what it is. Holy is something abstract. And really that's the way we deal with it. You know everyone feels comfortable with intimacy. But holy is something. And I just want to share that. That may not be the case. Because. Really what happens is we all do believe that we understand intimacy. And when I say we, I want to just break the uh, myth of, you know, the black hatters. What do they understand from intimacy? They're into spiritual stuff and all that stuff. And I don't know what causes the myth, whether it's the beard or the yarmulke or the titsus. But uh, I would like to once and for all settle that this is a myth because if you want to talk about to who holiness is tangible and not abstract you're looking at a tzaddik the definition of a tzaddik is someone who his soul is his identity and his body is just a vehicle through which he gets to wear or she gets to wear they have to be and accomplish what they need to accomplish most of us and I say 99.9% of the human race, including the Jewish people, are not tzaddikim. We identify ourselves by our body, and we struggle to live with our soul. And from that perspective, whether you're wearing a black hat or not, it would have been safe to say that intimacy is something I understand, something I tangibly appreciate, we all have our own image of what intimacy is, what intimacy should look like, and the struggle of today would be to understand what holiness is holy would be something abstract and just put things in proper perspective to understand how the uh, even in yeshiva, my my you in our class was once talking to him by a febrengan and I remember we asked him in a pinya why are we wasting our time chassidit is abstract it never will truly become our way of life we will never be able to identify with the spirituality more than we identify with our physical being. And by the way, just being very practical, very practical. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times, you're in this gung-ho mood of spirituality, and you're going to be today proper, you're going to get up, and you're going to daven and you do your stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's amazing how one foolish little phone call... Or maybe it happens to be that you didn't eat lunch on time. It's amazing how real the body is and how abstract the soul is. It's amazing what little things throw us off. We get irritated, we get frustrated, we get short-tempered with those we love most. And why? Not because of some spiritual overwhelming struggle. Simply speaking, you all of a sudden look at your watch and you realize, my gas is running low and all of a sudden your whole spirituality is affected by that so we really were telling him Rapinya we're sitting here, you're bringing with us, spirituality is real, physical, it's abstract and we're like, wake up it's not happening and I'll never forget the words he answered me because I think they're an amazing understanding he said how interesting because in Yeshiva we spoke the exact opposite Our goal was that this world, we definitely shouldn't identify with. That world, we'll keep on trying. So understand that no matter what level of spirituality you're at, unless you reach the level of tzaddik, definition of tzaddik as prescribed in Tanya, intimacy is tangible, holiness is abstract. And that was my understanding of it. And truth be said, as rabbis, those who serve in the capacity of rabbi, were always charged to talk about holiness, which may be why people create this myth of who a rabbi is, and what he really experiences. So I wanted to share with you another conversation I had with my Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Strahli, should live and be well. I once had this little pshak I came up with in Gemara. A little interpretation, a little twist. So I went over to my Rosh Hashiv, and I wanted to know if it's okay or not, what does he think about it? So I told my Rosh Hashiv, Rabbi Isra, my children actually were introduced to him. And I actually asked him, Nu, no, Rabbi Isra, what do you think about this interpretation to the Talmudic statement? And Rabbi Isra, you don't know, but God willing, one day we'll bring him down as a speaker. He grabbed onto his beard. For those who do know him, that means heads up, you're about to get a sense. And he tells me, Emperor, I don't understand. Mail me, I get paid. But why are you hacking the Chinese? Those are the words he understood of this whole thing. The Gemara is perfect. When you start giving your own twists, when you start giving your own interpretations, at that point you need to know why. So he was telling me, I get paid, I need to give a lecture four times a week to you students. So I have to come up with something. But why are you doing this? And why do I share with you this story is to understand that when we talk about holiness, many times the reason I'm talking about holiness and you're listening is because I'm being paid to talk about holiness. But in the real realm of things, a tzaddik can talk about holiness from a perspective of I understand this the rest of us are yearning for something abstract and therefore when I sat down to prepare this lecture my absolute understanding was my absolute understanding was that intimacy I got all figured out now we're going to struggle with holiness and then when I sat down I realized it's not to be the case because when I pulled up the dictionary on intimacy and I was looking for give me someone who can capture intimacy in a sentence and mind you, I got over here uh, the uh, inflected forms, the transitive verb the etymology, the uh, noun I got a whole bunch of stuff here of what intimacy is intimacy, then search intimate but the bottom line is, there's nothing Mr. Webster said that really puts in words the picture that I have of intimacy. And were time to allow and this forum to allow, I would actually enjoy the moment if we would open up the floor for people to go ahead and give their thoughts, put in words what intimacy is. I'm not going to do that at least till after the class. After we finish, really, we can go there. But if you think about what the definition of the word intimacy is, try to come up with words and it's really a struggle. And all of a sudden I realized that defining holy really is pretty easy. Defining intimacy has become a huge challenge. Let's define holy for a moment. If I had to give you the definition of the word holy in one word, what would it be? Godly. And now let's use the word holy in sentences. Holy temple. Holy Torah. Holy Sabbath. What do I mean when I use those words? What I mean is that when you go to the western wall, very few people, unless you're an architect, stands back and starts looking at the rocks. Because at that place, the dominance of the presence of divinity overrides the presence of those amazing stones. So when you walk into the Holy of Holies, I'm assuming, may it be soon that we will actually experience this, very few people walk into the holy temple and say, wow, that is an amazing archway. You didn't act that way. What happens when you go to the Torah? You're not really focusing on the parchment. By the way, have you ever noticed that film on Torah have different colors? Just depending on the parchment? Most of you probably didn't even notice that. Because when you look at the Torah when it's picked up, you don't look at the color of the parchment. You don't look at the ink. You're looking at the holy Torah. Because what you're looking at is a presence of divinity and not a presence of calligraphy. Let's talk about a tzaddik. When you look at a tzaddik, you know the Rebbe's mother, Rebbe Senchana, once saw, when the Rebbe showed up to 770, all the Hasidim are scattering, they're running away. So she went over to someone, talking about her son, and she said, I know him, he's really not a bad person, you don't need to run away. But why did we run away? We weren't afraid. We weren't afraid that the devil was going to look at us. How dare you after a whole night I was up learning. This is the way you look. You're not even sitting in Yeshiva and learning right now. That wasn't what it was about. What it actually was about was this amazing knowledge that you're looking at a human being by who divinity is more relevant than physical. And that's why in the Talmud when it talks about Atzadik, it actually said the most powerful description of law is not a verse or a Talmudic teaching the absolute definition the absolute definition of law is when you can say that I saw Rabbi so-and-so do this now be careful with the Rabbi so-and-so because I am not an authority of law but when you talk about a tzaddik when you actually saw a tzaddik behave so that way you knew that you're looking at a walking, talking Torah So his behavior is the imprint of code of Jewish law. So the definition of holy becomes so crystal clear. What is the definition of holy? Godly. And when you're looking at an object or a human being, that when you're looking at it, you're seeing more the presence of divinity than you're seeing its physical dynamics, that's holy. But when it comes to the intimacy, The intimacy becomes very difficult because I've been challenged and I'm not sure that this will do the job but I've been challenged when I wanted to finally put intimacy into words because when it's an abstract feeling we really don't have a grip on it. If we're going to define the word intimacy now we can start dealing with it. An interesting experience I had as I was beginning to prepare this class. It was bittersweet to know that maybe I have a better understanding of holy than intimacy and I mean bittersweet. That's what the experience was. And now if I may, why are we talking about this today? And here it's important to understand what just began today. Let's talk about what the High Holidays mean and what does the month of Elul represent. Now I want to begin just by sharing with you Chassidus has not come to at all replace any teachings that you have in the Talmud, the Medrash, or books of Musa. That is not at all what Chassidus is coming to do. The Rebbe in a famous talk on Chassidus defines it as it is the soul to imbue a whole new perception of life in the body of Judaism so therefore when you look into the Talmud, you look into Musa, what are you going to see about the High Holidays? you're going to see it talking about days of awe days of judgment you better behave get your act together and it may be until now you weren't that careful in A, B or C you have 30 days left to be careful and get your act together because you are going to be judged and the entire concept of High Holidays bears within it the concept of Givurah strength, strictness, perfection and with that we need to check our imperfections which is innate imperfections that God accepts and which is voluntary imperfections known as faults, as mistakes and then you have the shofar why do we blow the shofar? tomorrow morning we start blowing the Shofar for the whole month and then of course biblically speaking we do it on Rosh Hashanah and then again in Yom Kippur why do we blow the Shofar? Maimonides quotes another verse he quotes a verse of Yishag Arye I think those are the words but the concept is and the lion roars who does not tremble again the call of sternness, the call of strictness, the call of perfection, the mandatory need to live up to Teshuvah. Hasidus doesn't erase that. Hasidus just introduces a new flavor. and let's change a little bit of our only perception of the High Holidays. Let's look about what metaphors the Alter Rebbe, founder of Chabad Lubavitch, uses to prescribe the High Holidays and the month of Elul. Number one, he talks about the rose. Last week's email. The rose, why the rose? Because the rose has 13 petals. And why do we need those 13 petals of the rose in the month of Elul? Because 13 represents the number of mercy. You remember the song you're going to sing many times on High Holiday. Hashem, Hashem, Keorachom V'charnom What is that verse? That is the verse that when Moses came up to God He saw God, figuratively speaking, dressed in a talit, saying those words And he asked Hashem, what are those? And Hashem said, those are the attributes of mercy And then He said, but you're saying there that you're going to forgive those who repent and those who don't repent And Hashem said, so? He says it is improper to give those who repent. Don't forgive those who don't repent. And Hashem says the language of oath In my life Bechayai, as they say in Hebrew You're going to one day need these. And what happens when the Jews create the golden calf? Hashem wants only to only forgive those that repent and didn't sin. And Moses brings back the 13 attributes of mercy. And what happens then? Hashem said, didn't you tell me? and Moses says but didn't you tell me and on that level the concept of mercy is overriding who is deserving and who is not deserving it is called in the works of Kabbalah the crown that which is transcending the actual brain of intellect and it's represented by the rose what, what emotion if I'm going to call intimacy an emotion comes to mind when you think of a rose giving roses receiving roses intimacy a whole new twist into this month of sternness and awe what other metaphor does the altar ever use the king in the field what does it mean the king in the field the definition of the king in the field is Okay. the definition of the king in the field is the king knows that when you come to see him in the palace that's not you if I may semi-jokingly say the last place you're going to find out who the boy is is on a date because they're behaving so proper they're dressed of course they open the door (laughs) and then when you say I do the door stops opening so what we're really talking about is in the palace you're not yourself and the king knows that so the relationship between a king and his subjects when you're coming to see him in his palace is where his identity is met. His protocol, his expectations, not yours. And therefore, in the palace, there is no intimacy. What happens when the king says, the king in the field, for a month I want to leave my palace, I want to see my subject in the field. And the Rebbe has always emphasized when using this metaphor, to explain that in the field you're dressed in your working clothes it's not even that you're inviting him for dinner to your house with candlelight you're in your working clothes you're frustrated with the struggles of life you're being a lot less than beautiful and then the king comes to see you the Talmud says that there was a very sad incident between the leader of the Jewish people which was Rabbi Gamaliel and Rabbi Yeshua to a point where actually Rabbi Gamliel was removed from leadership for a while and he actually came to ask forgiveness from Rabbi Yeshua and he meets Rabbi Yeshua in his shop and he sees that he's a blacksmith and Rabbi Yeshua, he tells Rabbi Yeshua, you're a blacksmith? Rabbi Yeshua looks at Rabbi Gamaliel and says these amazing words woe to the generation whose leaders do not know the livelihood and life of their people. There's a lack of intimacy. And that's why in this concept of the king in the field what's actually happening is Hashem saying I want to know you. I want to know you not the way you come to shul. I want to know you the way you are at your work. I want to know you in your struggles. I want to know you in your casual clothing So once again, the metaphor used for the month of Elul talks about intimacy And then if we talk about the most famous concept in Hasidus which describes the high holiday it's called Piru Hanitzut El Hamo'or. Why do we feel spiritual at this season of the year? and the definition is because there is a revelation of godliness that is not mundane on a regular weekday there is a certain level of godliness on holidays you move up a level on Shabbat you move up a level on high holidays you are actually experiencing God in His revelation and therefore the example of how your soul feels this time of year is as the spark feels when it's close to the flame if you watch the spark close to the flame that is where that amazing moment where the spark says I rather lose my identity my finite expression and be drawn into the existence of my source and that's what the Jewish soul is experiencing The Jewish soul are sparks from God. And all of a sudden when God steps into the picture, the soul feels that. And the sparks want to be drawn into the flame. Lose the identity of mini-I to become absolutely lost in the identity of the omnipotent I. Once again, intimacy. Let's go back to that lion roaring. That sounds frightening, the lion roars. If you study the book of Ezekiel, you talk about the chariot, you'll see that on God's throne the chariot has four faces. The face of the lion, the face of the ox, the face of the eagle, and the face of man. And then Kabbalah sets up where these four are. And it says, and to the right, Ezekiel says, and to the right I saw the face of a lion. And to the left I saw the face of the ox. The ABCs of Kabbalah. Right represents which attribute? Kindness. What does left represent? Strictness. If we're talking about the Arya. The great big lion. The roar which brings awe and trembling into our heart. What's it doing on the right side? All of a sudden the chauffeur is not just about to cross the trembling of strictness maybe it's a whole different tremble the type of trembling you feel when you're in love maybe the great roar of the lion is the passionate cry of our husband capital H wanting his spouse the Jewish people Esher Chayot. maybe that's a different tremble that's what Hasidus introduces so all of a sudden the days of awe do not just represent strictness and fear, perfection, lack of tolerance, under the microscopic eye of divinity, but rather what we're really talking about here is an overwhelming intimacy. And that's why today's topic on Rosh Chodesh Elul is understanding holy intimacy. There are two ways we can understand something. In the Torah, there's two ways the methodical approach of intellect defines something. One is called Or Yosha, one is called Or Choyzeh. Or Yosha is the direct approach. We say it the way it is. This is the law. You, if you ever walk into a Jewish library, you'll notice that the Jerusalem Talmud is made up of five books. While the Babylonian Talmud, in print, because we put together books, is twenty volumes. Why? Because in the Jerusalem law, there is no arguing. There is difference of opinions. But we're not dissecting. We're not questioning. It's the way it is. Omar Rabbi, so-and-so, this is the law. Umar Rabbi, so-and-so, this is the law. And it's done. Talmud Babli is really what's producing the amazing Jewish legal minds because Talmud Bavli is working by the process of elimination it gives a statement the Mishnah says that he says this and he says this but how can you understand that he says this if over here he says that aha so from here we must conclude extrapolate that this means that welcome to the world of Talmud because in Talmud Bavli everything is dissected everything is chiseled away and what you have by the end is the product of this is I would like to suggest that right now to understand what intimacy is we're going to take the Babylonian approach we're not going to say this is intimacy let's really discuss what's lacking in a relationship that has no intimacy Mind you, I'm serious about this approach because if I were to ask you to please go ahead and tell me what is your fantasy, what you would like to have in your relationship, you each can probably give me a long list of what you want your relationship to be. And not that I'm suggesting anyone here has, but if I were to ask you, please tell me what's lacking in your relationship we start stuttering. It's very hard to put our finger exactly on what's lacking in our relationship. We all know it. We all feel it. We wish that we can just take our heart, put it in front of the x-ray. Here, read this. I know it. I'm not being silly. There is what is exactly bothering me and lacking in this relationship. And yet, nevertheless, we cannot put it into words. This concept of understanding, the yes from the no, it's all of a sudden an approach that you realize certain things that are truly abstract, you will not be able to completely understand until you can see its shadow. Then we can understand. To understand what intimacy is, we're really going to have to focus on what is lacking in a relationship when there is no intimacy so I want to be very clear on why we're taking this approach because if we're going to be realistic and tangible and please understand how serious this is talking about what you're missing in a relationship is real talking about what you wish you can have in a relationship is abstract and fantasy if we're going to do something practical today with intimacy we need to make it real So we're going to take the approach of the Talmud Babli. Tell me what's lacking in a relationship that has no intimacy. And here I'd like to make a suggestion. A relationship that has no intimacy is lacking truth. What does that mean? And to understand this, I need to reintroduce a topic we once spoke about. There is truth, and there is truth of truth. Now that seems to be kind of playing games. You know, it's like my friend would always tell me to understand the definition of black and white. The woman is either pregnant or not pregnant. She can't be a little bit almost pregnant. There are certain things that either are or are not. Truth should be one of those things because even a little white lie should already define that you have left truth so what does it mean truth and truth of truth? Torah is truth Torah Emet Torah is absolute in a world of relativity and that's why Torah is truth and yet nevertheless the fifth of Abba one hundred years ago in his famous exposition of Samach Vav 66 he defines that Torah is only truth and not truth of truth why? because he says within Torah there is only one field which is truth of truth and what is that? that is halakha Jewish law why so? and the answer is because when you're studying Torah, let's talk not about law when you're talking about Torah even when you're talking about the amazing, amazing methodical process of the Talmud. When you're talking about the overwhelming beautiful process of Chassidus. When you're talking about meditations. You're talking about truth, not truth of truth. Because they only can exist on subliminal levels. They can only exist in the spiritual world when you're talking about halacha, then you're talking truth of truth because that manifests itself in the physical world. Let's explain this for a moment. Hillel and Shammai famous with the Hillel and Shammai Why do we always know Hillel? Very few schools are called Shammai. Very good schools are called Hillel. Why? There's a reason for that. Because throughout Jewish law Only seven times do we follow the opinion of Shammai. All other times we follow the opinion of Hillel. Do you know why? Shammai, if you want to speak, if we're going to take the audacity to speak about this, Shammai is more perfect than Hillel. And that's why, believe it or not, when Mashiach comes, we're going to stop doing what we do like Hillel and start doing what we do like Shammai. Actually, in Kabbalah it says the same reason why today we actually say in our Shemone Esrei Magen Abraham When Mashiach comes, we are going to transfer from Abraham to Yitzchak Because Yitzchak is perfect Abraham was able to, I don't want to use the word compromise but he was able to understand that the perfect Torah needs to blend with the imperfect human and that's why Avram is chesed Avram found it within his capacity to even pray for the people of Sodom when you talk about Shammai Shammai is perfect Hilo understood the need to in quotes compromise so that the perfect Torah can become a way of life for the imperfect human being. And thus, if you want to know the truth, Shammai seems to be more absolute truth than Hillel. (coughs) So when you talk about the truth of Torah, it is Shammai. The problem with Shammai is That we the imperfect human being, here in the imperfect environment of earth cannot relate and live up to the definition of shaman. And that's why the truth of truth is halakha. Because something that can only be truth and compatible to the subliminal, to the spiritual, to the abstract, to the perfect is not the truth of truth that which can even be compatible to the imperfect human being in his imperfect struggles and temptations and there that can become a way of life of Judaism that is the truth of truth. So you have truth and you have truth of truth. What I'm suggesting here is that what's lacking in the perfect relationship that has no intimacy is the truth of truth. That is what may be lacking. And let's understand this for a moment. You know the famous Mishnah of the ethics of our Father. Which is the love that will not endure? That is the love that is dependent upon something. Which is the love that will endure? That is the love that is not dependent upon something. Being proper is something. A relationship that is dependent upon correctness, properness, right and wrong, is a relationship that cannot endure and that is what I would like to suggest is lacking when you don't have intimacy in your relationship because the relationship that can only breathe can only endure in the, uh, in the realm of where things are proper and correct that is the relationship that will not endure it has truth but it doesn't have the truth of truth now in my notes it's bold and italic so please picture what I'm saying it's coming out in bold and italic this lecture is right now taking a dangerous turn because the definition of being unhealthy is not knowing when a relationship has become abusive improper time to leave so when we talk about intimacy do be very careful with what we're saying right now because if intimacy has become the great idealistic Job syndrome that I am born to suffer and I will go through this because this is the tikkun of my neshama and therefore I can live with abusiveness that is not intimacy there is a reason why we teach our children and hopefully ourselves That intimacy is sacred, intimacy is reserved, intimacy shall be earned. And only a long-term relationship can test itself and prove itself to be worthy of intimacy. You've heard this from me so many times, and I think I say it so many times, so one day I'll actually get to listen to it. Do not treat your heart as a one-bedroom, studio, apartment. Relationships need definitions. There are those that deserve only to stand outside the door and talk to you. There are those that deserve to make it into your foyer. There are those that deserve to make it into your kitchen, your living room, and then the bedroom is sacred. Intimacy belongs only where it belongs. And intimacy, when used where it not belong, is not intimacy. It's abusiveness par extra. That was in bold and italic. Now let's go back to where intimacy does belong. You know, the previous Rebbe has an amazing metaphor that he uses, and I don't know if he created it or he took it from his predecessors. But, there's an amazing, which I saw in the name of the previous Rebbe, he writes, Understand why we need Torah and Mitzvahs in our relationship with Hashem. And he gives this amazing example. There is this amazing genius, and like most geniuses, absent-minded. Their life, their entire being exists of nothing more than the most purest and finest intellectual thoughts. And then there is this real simpleton who in his life has everything but intellectualism. And this simpleton really admires, adores, respects this genius and is yearning for a relationship. But there seems to be a problem because there's nowhere where these two worlds, simpleton and genius, are overlapping. And therefore he's yearning for this relationship, but he can't have it. You know how you start a relationship. There's the pickup line, then there's their conversation, you find things that you share in common, we now have a foundation where to create respect, relationship, this simpleton has nothing of that with this genius. He has no open line, he has no field of discussion where they share a common interest, and he is absolutely stuck in this emptiness of yearning. I wish somehow I can have somewhat of a relationship with this genius. And then, one day, this genius turns around to the simpleton and says, can you do me a favor please? Can you please make me a cup of tea? All of a sudden, the genius with two left hands needs the simpleton. Imagine what shoots through that simpleton all at once. Imagine the joy, the fulfillment. All of a sudden, there is somewhere that I could be of existence to this genius. We all of a sudden overlap. There's something we can share. There's something I can offer. A relationship is created. Why the metaphor? The metaphor is because God, infinite, omnipotent, there is nothing that I could do to kind of buddy-buddy up with God and start this relationship and hope that it goes somewhere. Find some common interest. Where we are peers, There's nowhere that that exists between God and I, and then all of a sudden God turns around and says can you do me a favor, light Shabbos candles, give charity, put it on mezuzah, all of a sudden what goes through us is like wow double wow, there is somewhere where I exist to God. There is somewhere where I can offer God something. There is somewhere where our relationships, our existences overlap and that's where our relationship starts. That is an amazing yet very humbling understanding of any true relationship I can have with God. Because when I am meditating, humming, spiritual, that really has nothing to do with God because that meditation and spirituality is as physical and as finite, limited as its creator. But mitzvahs, God told us, that's absolute, that's real, that's where I and God, God and I can have a relationship. And yet there's a problem with this relationship. And the problem with this relationship is that it is the relationship that cannot endure because it is dependent upon something. Torah and mitzvahs is a something. And if my relationship with God depends on Torah and mitzvahs, then that relationship will not endure. What happens when I sin? What happens when I'm just not in the mood of following these rules right now? I am right now in the mode of rebellion, go free. That's it. I have no relationship with God. Let me tell you a very interesting little discussion that God had with the Torah. It's a Medrash. And the Holy One, blessed be He, asked of the Torah, What shall I do when my children sin? And the Torah said, well, if they do it by mistake, unintentionally, then let them bring a sacrifice, and they shall be forgiven. And God says, Torah, tell me, and what if they did it intentionally? What if they didn't do it unintentionally? What if they did it with the utmost anger and hatred towards me? They were so upset with what I did, they don't understand me, and they rebelled against me. What shall I do to my children? And the Torah said, at this point, I can't help you. At this point, they have desecrated the very foundation of the relationship I offer them to have with you. The only thing I can suggest is that death shall cleanse the soul of the stains of the body. Look how dependent this relationship we have with God when it's through Torah and mitzvahs only is and thus that cannot endure and that's why the relationship the Jew has with God through Torah and mitzvahs is absolutely true but it is not the truth of truth because there are places where it cannot exist in the sinner's world truth of the relationship of Torah is non-existent. The Torah needs to say, I can't go there with you. And therefore it's not the truth of truth. And therefore we must say that the love that the Jew and God, God and Jew have because of Torah and Mitzvahs is not a relationship that can endure. Let's go back to the relationships we have human. humans. When you talk about a relationship that's truthful, when you talk about the relationship that has not just truth but truth of truth, which is intimacy, and here I will say, the question is, and now that you found Mr. Right, now what? And the question is, remember, you have absolutely fulfilled your due diligence, obligation of getting into this relationship. And remember, again and again, we're talking about arenas where we're respecting the absolute honesty a person has with themselves. Because sometimes you run into relationships out of need, and it isn't that due diligence was done. It was, I don't want to see what I don't want to see, because I need this to be the way I want it to be. We're not going there. But let's say you did do your due diligence. And let's say, this is a long-term relationship. And let's say that it has stand the challenge of time and imperfections. Now what? What is intimacy? What is truth of truth? I'm going to introduce a word, the one word, which I came up with for intimacy on a very practical to-do list. Intimacy is the power of forgiveness. It's not maybe what we wanted to hear. It's not maybe what novels... Forgiveness forgiveness I know that doesn't sound as romantic and maybe Tom Cruise wouldn't really play in this movie but I think on the most practical reality level if we're saying that truth is a perfect relationship but by definition perfection defines its limitations And therefore the truth of truth which has no limitations is the power of forgiveness. And here again I go into italics and bold. Not everyone deserves forgiveness. There is a relationship where I abuse you, I say I'm sorry, I abuse you, I say I'm sorry, I abuse you and I say I'm sorry. At that point you're not being holy, divine or intimate by saying I forgive you. You're actually being, forgive the word, stupid. Maybe because of many reasons, but if we're going to call it what it is, it's being stupid. Maybe it'd be more pleasant to call it codependent, in other words, but let's be rash, crum, city boys for a moment. It's stupid. Why? Because I think we need to define who deserves forgiveness and who does not deserve forgiveness. And let's get a little Kabbalistic here for a moment. It's just getting Kabbalistic is my form of anesthesia, so let's just do it that way. Let's get Kabbalistic for a moment because what is the person, who is the person that deserves to be forgiven? And if I had to sum it up in one sentence, it is He whose sins come from an external will, not inner will. Show me a good person that made a mistake and I'll show you a person who deserves to be forgiven. Show me a bad person, I'll show you a person who does not deserve to be forgiven. You need to be able, in the world of intimacy, to get a feel, not of the external expression of the person, not what they do and what they don't do, not what they think and what they don't think, not what they feel and what they don't feel. Give me a real picture image of their genetics. Tell me if this is a good person or this is a bad person a good person who makes a bad mistake in the right arena, we'll talk about that in a moment is salvageable let's not go back to politics for a minute but there's a reason why Israel is focused on precise targeting there's a reason why Abraham prayed for Sodom, because if there's ten righteous people there, there's good people doing bad things We don't need to turn over Saddam. We don't need to blanket bomb Lebanon. As long as there exists good people, even if they're being, I don't want to use the word you know, let's use it, forced, convinced, overwhelmed, whatever, abused into doing bad things, you're looking at something salvageable. And in that arena, forgiveness could exist. So, once again, do not use this lecture to empower your weakness. Being abused is a weakness. Please erase everything you heard if you cannot clearly define the difference between deserved intimacy and outright stupid abusiveness. Please if you can't go there then go nowhere in this lecture at all because it's more dangerous for you to try intimacy than to step out of abuse so I say it again and again intimacy is something so sacred so precious and any teaching in Kabbalah will tell you the holier it gets the more evil it can be expressed be very careful that you're dealing with your inner strength and not with your inner weakness with that again said for the last time we're now going to move into the definition of intimacy is that I do not have this relationship dependent upon something and that something even is correctness properness this relationship can even even survive darkness, mistakes, betrayal, it is really, really brazen, what I'm telling you, that the ultimate true relationship does not even depend on loyalty, and I will disintegrate after this class for saying that, but, this relationship, the ultimate relationship is not even dependent on loyalty. As long as you tell me that the betrayal is that of the external mistakes and weaknesses and not of the inner commitment, I can say that relationships and the truth of truth does not even depend on loyalty. Now let's talk about spirituality. Let's move from humans to God for a moment. God tells the Torah what you cannot do because you're only truth. I can do, and I can do it with my children, the Jewish people, because He and I, I and He, have the truth of truth, and thus introduce into the room the word Teshuva. Where does teshuvah exist? Does teshuvah exist only when we made a mistake? Or can the teshuva exist even when in our relationship with God we became temporarily abusive, rebellious, I hate you? <coughs> can teshuva exist there too? Huh? Explain teshuva, that's everything I'm doing right now.
1: Huh? So
0: therefore, in the ultimate realm, if when we turn back to God, God will not forgive us then there is no intimacy in this relationship and then this relationship is only truth and not truth of truth we're starting to get a picture of what the month of Elul is let's go back to the human beings for a moment you know what let's stay spiritual for one more second Have you noticed, by the way, how God also doesn't become vulnerable before He feels secure? Have you noticed that God did not create the Jewish people until He fished out Abraham? And even when He fished out Abraham, He had to test him ten times. Now this is a God with a complex. He doesn't just step into relationships. He will not be hurt. He tests Abraham ten times. What happens after he tests Abraham ten times? Then he wants to see, is this behavioral or is this genetic? Let me see his seed. And he fishes out which seed yes and which seed no. Abraham had two sons. And then along comes Isaac. And again there's a the test. And again there's the challenges. And then again God wants to know, is this behavioral or is this genetic? He sees his seed. And all of a sudden he says, you know what, this is genetic. It's not just papa, yes, son, no, grandchild, out of the picture. This is a lineage. I think I found where I can be intimate with. And it's still not over. The Jewish people are taken into Egypt. And they are given the ultimate challenge of our people. Do you know what that challenge was? The challenge of identity. Can you name me the only three things the Jews held on to? And that's why they left Egypt. One is their names, Jewish names, remember that guys. Number two, their clothing, they dress like Jews. Number three, their language. Did you notice that there is nothing very idealistic, spiritual, self-sacrifice? There's only one thing God wants to know, before He gets intimate. Will you ever sell me out? You're going to go your way, you're going to do things I don't like, I'm okay with that. I just want to know one thing. Promise me, you'll never step out of this relationship. You'll upset me. You'll anger me. I'll anger you. We'll get under each other's skins. We're going to annoy each other. We're going to say the word, I hate you. But tell me that after 210 years, you still know your Hebrew name. You still speak like a Jew. You still know how to dress like a Jew. That's all it really takes for me to be willing to become intimate with you. I can get over the behavioral fault, but I need to know your inner dynamics. Tell me that we're really one. And that's when God becomes intimate with the Jewish people. Let's go back to the human, and we're almost finished. Do you know what intimacy has to offer? We're talking about intimacy means forgiveness. Intimacy, intimacy, sorry, wow, (laughs) I really struggled with intimacy today. Intimacy means that even external loyalty doesn't need to exist. It can survive even betrayal. So tell me now, if intimacy is forgiveness, what does intimacy offer? Tell me the one word that you're lacking in a relationship that's perfect but not intimate and I suggest today that that word is insecurity because if my relationship depends upon something then I will always be insecure if I need to be a certain individual for God then my relationship with God is insecure I never know you know that famous Jackie Mason joke, you know? Tony, you coming home? We're still married? Oh, we're still married, great. That, in, that insecurity that exists, I never know if today's going to be the day I so upset he, capital H, that it's over with. And you know what happens when you're insecure? For us living in this blessed curse, cellular society, it's that constant calling of your spouse. No reason. <laughs> it's that phone calls there's an insecurity brewing here all of a sudden the quantity of time spent together leads to insecurity any other relationship is infringing on my relationship I'm insecure do you know why I'm insecure? because in the lack of intimacy I know that I am not absolutely accepted for who I am the way I am wherever and whenever I am you want to talk about lack of security I don't mean to bring up an explosive topic right now but to a family that can only pray in a shul that has no machitza because you can sit together forgive me my dear friends that insecurity if you can't sit on two opposite sides of the machitza, knowing absolutely certain that he prays for no one but for me and I pray for no one but for him I'm going to venture to say the machita issue is an insecurity issue and forgive me for going there for a moment but if you want to talk about absolute security you want to talk about absolute certainty that's the definition of intimacy because if forgiveness exists then you accept me not for just my goodness I have to offer but for my faults for my imperfections and yes for my ugliness that's intimacy that's security and it's amazing how when you have that in a relationship your relationship is so solidified it is so perfect it's the perfect that doesn't need perfection what could be more perfect? so when you have that security when you have that intimacy when you're not trembling because of oh my god what happens when he finds out what happens when she finds out then you have an intimate relationship and once again remember your bedroom is not a one, I'm sorry, your heart is not a one bedroom studio God took his time seven generations many tests much suffering much friction in that relationship before God brought us to Mount Sinai and got intimate with us. So intimacy needs to be something real. And it's something real when it needs to be earned. That's intimacy. When you know that this person may behave sometimes disrespectful. And I'm not saying you should let that happen. But I'm talking about on the level of can this relationship survive does forgiveness exist when you know that ultimately when push comes to shove when that ship is drowning he is waiting to get you out of there first he will never ever jump ship on you yes behaviorally yes maybe expressively yes but he will never jump ship on you then you're dealing with someone who deserves forgiveness forgiveness deserves tolerance, deserves enough love to teach Him right from wrong. That's intimacy. And with that said, understand that Hashem doesn't sell out intimacy even to this very moment with any of us for free. There's a reason why the month of Elul begins with us blowing shofar. What does it mean that you blow your chauffeur? What does that mean? I'm taking a chauffeur and I'm blowing the chauffeur. And the answer is, you take your inner chauffeur, which leads you to your inner heart, where there is no expressive words of negotiation slash manipulation. It's where you have nothing to say other than this one. Simple outcry. And what is the one simple outcry of a Jew which defies all words, all negotiation, all tricks, all trying to be in control, trying to create an external security? It's when the Jew picks up the chauffeur and with all his being says but one thing. You, capital Y. When a Jew can do that, when a Jew can realize that everything I yearn to be, the famous, the beautiful, the powerful, the wealthy, the brilliant, the beloved by all, all of that is something I strive for and yearn for. But if the ship was sinking, I'm with you God, you, you, and only you. That's the chauffeur. When you can tell that to God, then the realm of intimacy exists, and the month of forgiveness is beautifully activated. Unconditionally. And I want to close with one last thought. We have defined
1: intimacy.
0: We've defined intimacy as forgiveness. Define intimacy as the truth of truth. We've defined intimacy as the love that endures because it is dependent upon absolutely nothing. And then the title doesn't just read understanding intimacy, it reads understanding holy intimacy. And simply speaking, the definition of holy up to this point was reality and Boba Mises. Bubba Mises is, is unholy. There's nothing ever holy about denial. And reality is holy. There's a woman by the name of Kana Schafstein. She printed this article with her name. So I can say it in her name. And I actually know her very well. And she actually, I asked her, this is what happened. And she told me this story exactly as happened. She was already becoming an older girl. She went into the ever blessed memory. And they were discussing about her getting married. And the Rebbe asked her, why aren't you finding a shiddah? And she answered the Rebbe, because I am looking for, and she gave this most, she, by the way she's a writer, this most overwhelming, poetic, beautiful description of love. She told me this with her own mouth. The Rebbe looked at me and said, you're reading too many novels. So, the definition of holy versus unholy up to this point was defined as truthful, real versus Hollywood fiction. I want to take it one step further. The definition of intimacy as we defined it right now was unconditional acceptance. And therefore, it is absolute security. But you know what the flip side of that can sometimes be? One can become plastic, one can become lazy, one can feel no need to keep on earning this relationship. So I wanted to find for you now, a Hasidic interpretation to the word Holy. And before I do that, I want to just put something, parenthetically speaking. You know, when we talk about sin, fault, imperfection, they can have many different definitions. One definition is, you really botched up, you betrayed, you did that, that was horrible. But there's another definition of sin in a relationship. And that is that I'm not giving you my fullest. And in that definition, the word chet also means lacking, not just negative action, sin. And in that relationship, when you feel that type of undeserving because I have not given all I can. And then there's even a deeper definition of undeserving. And that is, even when I give all I can, I am so undeserving of this relationship. Because He, capital H, is so far greater. His capacity of love unconditionally, acceptance, always being there, is far greater than anything I can ever deserve. And yet, Intimacy means that even in the face of those insecurities, I'm so secure. Because Hashem loves me, not for what I do, not for how I express myself, but for who I ultimately am. And now let's define a deeper meaning in the word holy intimacy. There's an amazing Hasidic interpretation of in the verse Ein Kadoshka Hashem There are none that are holy like God What does the word holy mean? I told you it means godly Let me tell you the halachic definition Under the chuppah the man says ak mikudeshetli What exactly does that mean? Which man actually thinks that he can make his wife holy? Get your act together Then talk to me about making me holy So what does the definition mikudesheter there mean? And the word Mikodesh now analogically means separated. Kodesh u And the definition of muvdo means that until now you were permissible to get married to anyone in the world. And from this moment on, hediyat mikudeshe, you are separated from the rest of the world. The word kadosh, holy, also means, what's the word I'm looking for? Not aloof, that would be a negative connotation, but exalted would be the proper word. Exalted, separated. And I close with this thought. The verse is telling us, En Kadoshka Hashem. There is no one that is exalted and separated like God. Well, let's talk about this. God created creation. God sustains creation. God imbues creation. God vivifies creation. God is creation. And then we say, and nevertheless, En ka Hashem. God is separated and exalted from creation. Let's talk about this in a relationship. After a moment of intimacy, two things can happen. You can be left just feeling wow, there's nothing I need to do. It just is so beautiful. But then there's holy intimacy where the absolute antithesis of I am absolutely secured in my acceptance as is and yet I am so driven to need to deserve just a little bit more. Holy Intimacy. What is amazing in Holy Intimacy is that at the same moment that you have the absolute security of because who I genetically am, I am accepted unconditionally by God and yet I feel the drive, the need to be able to earn this beautiful relationship with Hashem. To be able to simultaneously believe in the month of Elul believe, trust, feel, know that God is forgiving me because of who I am. I'm a good person, making sometimes bad mistakes, God knows that, and therefore God forgives me. God knows I may have shamed Him multiple times, but when push comes to shove, I will never jump ship on Him. And therefore, God ultimately, absolutely accepts me as is. That's the feeling of intimacy in the month of Elul. The feeling of holiness is, and nevertheless, there's nothing I'm going to stop from doing to deserve more and more the relationship with God. Do you know why in an intimate relationship there is no betrayal? I'll tell you a story. I told you this before. I have a cousin. Today is a great rabbi. Who was kicked out of school one day. And he told me, I am afraid. To go home, my father's gonna find out. And I, being the arrogant little obnoxious me, told him at this age what he thinks gonna happen. Your father's gonna hate you? The words he told me really is the utmost definition of holy intimacy. He told me, Abrumi, I am not afraid of what he's going to do to me when he finds out. I am afraid of what I am doing to him when he finds out. That's an intimate relationship. That is why betrayal does not exist in intimate relationships. Because of that unconditional love, that intimacy, that acceptance, I'm driven not to betray, not to hurt, not to ever say, I've done enough. Guys, it's Rosh I have the opportunity to wish you a happy, good and healthy New Year. And I hope that this really helps us on a day-to-day basis to understand from what point we stand in asking Hashem for forgiveness.